trilobites began to emerge in the Cambrian and the Silurian, so they're very, very old. And Americans began to find these in the railroad cuts that they were making through the rocks of the United States. They began to talk to people in England who were also finding trilobites, and they began for the first time. Now, again, we take this for granted, but it was not until the 1830s that people in Britain and the Americas began to imagine that those two areas of land had once been connected. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Winter is the Anthony P. Meyer Family Professor in the Humanities, and she's the director of the Stanford Humanities Center. Um, and uh, we have her previous book, uh, American Enlightenment's On Sale in the Back. She'll be signing these after the talk, and uh, we'll, we'll get her to tell us a little bit more about this as well. But right now, without any further delay, let's have a big round of applause and bring Carol into the stage. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Michael, for that excellent introduction. And thanks to all of you for coming here. And thanks to David and Abby Rumsey for, um, in some senses, really helping to inspire this project since we had our conference last year at the Rumsey Map Center uh, and to, to really push my thinking forward about it. What better place to talk about deep time than the Long Now Foundation? What I hope to do today is to think with you about the first moment in our history when we began to think in terms of what we can call the Long Now. So the Long Now, as I understand it from the website, is 10,000 years from now, maybe 20,000, maybe 30,000. But that range of time, that sheer length of time is extraordinary and it's unimaginable in many ways. And yet we love to imagine it and to think with it. So what I wanna do with you today is to bring you back to the moment in American history when we began to think that it was possible to think in those large chronological chunks of time. So you can leave the Long Now Foundation at the end of the evening knowing that not only are you thinking in terms of this extraordinary uh, long period of time, but that in some ways you are thinking in ways that are radically new and radically revolutionary. So let's begin by looking at the image of deep time. If you Google the term deep time this evening when you go home and you hit image, this is the image that you will get. It is a wonderful image and I wish that I could show it to you uh, very close up because it uh, 
profits from your close examination. This is an effort to show the history of the Earth in a single image, a 4.6 billion history of the Earth that begins over here in this tiny little dot and then spreads through this ever-widening slinky figure all the way up to the present, which is here, and the Californians in the room will be delighted to know that all of history culminates in a surfer. That's what I really want you to look at when you open it up on your screens at home. But this is a really interesting image because it captures what's very hard to capture in a single uh, frozen image, which is the passage of time. And it also is in no particular place. This is pure time removed from a particular geographical space. We are simply in the history of the Earth moving through geological time periods. So you'll see that we go through the Cambrian and you know life starts with a single cell and then we continue to unfold and suddenly we're in the dinosaurs and then we're here with our surfer and that is deep time represented. There are many, many ways of representing deep time. You can find a whole lot of them on the web. And what we're going to do today is see the historical origin of this particular and rather strange way of conceptualizing the past. But before we do that, uh, you might ask yourself, why is this person interested in doing this? So uh, I actually grew up at the beach in Southern California in the little town of Del Mar. And every summer, we would go up to the Mammoth Lakes area uh, in the Sierras. And in order to do that, you have to travel up uh, 395, which is a beautiful stretch of highway if you love barren desert, and a horrible stretch of highway if you don't like barren desert. This is what it looks like. This is me as a small child a very small child, uh, sitting in my parents' car as we took the eight-hour drive up the Owens Valley in order to get to Mammoth Lakes. Now, um, in the 70s, when I was a child, there were no devices, so, so there was nothing to do in the car after we had made the yarn dolls that my mother had uh, brought along, and so I would look out the window. And for those of you who have been into the Owens Valley, this is what you see. And I think deep time was what I thought the length of the car trip actually was. <laughs> but it was actually the um, kind of experience of seeing the extraordinary mountains, the White Mountains on my right and the Sierra Nevada on my left, over about a six-hour period going up and down the valley that first um, caused my imagination to wonder, how is it that these things could happen? How is it that these mountains formed on each side of me? How is it that these geological processes unfolded? And how extraordinary that this happened over such a long period of time and that I could see none of it happening right now. So now as a historian uh, at Stanford, I'm able to look at these things uh, from a historical perspective. I'm not a geologist, but I like to imagine how geologists and others first imagined deep time. So that is why I'm interested in it. We're gonna talk about the origin of deep time today. And what I want you guys to really appreciate is the rapidity which which the deep time revolution occurred in the American past. We could also say that it happened in the European past, but we're just gonna talk about the United States today. The deep time revolution, the capacity to think that the history of the Earth and life upon it was not a mere 6,000 years old, but in fact was 1 billion, 2 billion, 3 
three billion, four billion years old, occurred within the space of a single century. And that century was between the American Revolution in 1776 and basically the moment when the car was invented. So this is an extraordinarily um, broad reorientation of the human psyche and, and the way we conceptualize our place within the universe. Uh, and it happened within the space of 100 years. So how does such a thing happen? How do we go from imagining that the, that the Earth is 6,000 years old uh, to 4 billion years old? And that's what I'm going to show you very quickly right now. OK, before the American Revolution, in the 17th century and before, people actually imagined that the Earth was 6,000 years old. So why do they think the Earth was 6,000 years old? Well, they thought the Earth was 6,000 years old because the Bible told them so. There was a, an archbishop in the 17th century named Archbishop Usher, and he calculated by reading the Bible very, very literally that, in fact, God had created the Earth in 4004 BC on a Wednesday in October. I'm not. <laughs> Not joking, this is what Archbishop Usher did. And uh, a lot of the early geological treatises, one of which you're seeing here, uh, extrapolated from that to imagine a history of the Earth that included the Americas that was only 6,000 years old. So how does all this happen? Well, so the idea was that God created the Earth 6,000 years ago, uh, and then people began to be very, very bad, which you know from the Bible. And so there was this gigantic flood with a capital F that came along. Um, and God rebooted humanity uh, and, and life upon it. So the, this first geological text shows that the earth is covered with this flood. And the arrow is pointing to this tiny little Noah's Ark being born aloft by angels. I just had to point that out to you because it was just so charming. Um, the idea also is that the American Americas, as the hemisphere that is discovered last, emerged last from the floodwaters. This inspired a lot of understandings of life, uh, animal, plant, and human life in the Americas in the 18th century. They believed that all life forms in the Americas were inferior to, to European life forms because the continents of the Americas had arisen last, and so they were colder and wetter, like you are when you get out of the tub, and they were therefore inferior life forms. Don't, don't inquire too much into the science because it doesn't bear a lot of close examination. But that was how people understood the history of the Earth before the American Revolution. Now, let's fast forward to a mere 100 years afterward when it was widely believed, um, thanks to a series of new scientific understandings, that many parts of the Earth were at least 2.2 billion years old. And I'm pointing to you uh, to the Canadian cratons, the Canadian shield, which is some of the oldest rocks in the world. There are other ones in Australia and South Africa. So that's an extraordinary change in how people understand their own place in the universe, to think that the Earth used to be 6,000 years old, and now it's at least 2.2 billion years old. Not only how do you get there, but how do you even begin to understand that? How do you draw pictures of that? How do you, how do you put that into your mind and to make sense of it? So what we're going to do is to look at some of the first images that people began to create in order to understand what is essentially non-understandable. 
So first they began to look at maps differently. So I'm just showing you uh, a map now. Uh, and this is just your basic 18th century map. It's not particularly interesting. I, I hesitate to say that in front of the Rumseys. Sorry about that. But this is just, this is just I just took a map, a mappy map, right? Um, that, that is supposed to show space, right? So this is North America as it was seen in the 18th century. Within a few decades, the first geological maps of the United States began to be created. And this is one of the first ones. What makes it geological? Well, what makes it geological, and this is from 1809, is that this coloring represents the age of the rocks that are being represented. So the key is over here. So the yellow rocks are the newest rocks, and the orange rocks are the oldest rocks. We take these kinds of maps for granted. We look at this, we say, this is a geological map. These are the young rocks, these are the old rocks. This was radically new in the 18th century. To imagine that America could be represented not as a series of political entities or jurisdictions of economics, but actually as a series of uh, time lapses. Here is another example from around the same time period. This is really incredible. This is the first cross-section map of the United States. If you could come up closer and look at it, you could see that over here, we are starting essentially at the Atlantic Ocean, and here we are ending in the Ozarks, and what we are looking at is um, a vertical axis of feet, which shows us the time period that we're in, and a horizontal axis of, of where we are in space. There's a long line at the top of the image that says supposed level of the primitive ocean. So they are imagining, they're still kind of operating with what we call flood geology, you know, that the Earth is about 6,000 years old, but they're not indicating the precise date because they're, they're starting to become a little uncertain about it. But the idea was that sometime in the past there was a great ocean and then at some point it began to recede. But what's really extraordinary about this map is this is the first time that we basically have the United States as a layer cake and a map that takes a knife and cuts through it and shows us the United States not as politics but as developing through time through the very earth itself. We basically have an XY axis for under understanding the past of the United States. Now, as all of this is happening, they're beginning to have the Industrial Revolution. So when I showed you the car at the end of uh, the, you know, from where we are coming to where we are going, the car was not chosen uh, accidentally. Uh, the American interest in the past of the deep past of their country was very much inspired by the Industrial Revolution, by trains and roads being literally cut through the rocks of the United States. And in those rocks, they began to see strata. And in the strata, they began to see fossils. And they began to ask themselves, what are those fossils? Where did they come from? And most importantly, where did they come from? So one of the fossils that they began to find was this, a trilobite, and that's actually what Otto was, was drawing uh, over here. The trilobites began to emerge in the Cambrian and the Silurian, so they're very, very old. And Americans began to find these in the railroad cuts that they were making through the rocks of the United States. 
They began to talk to people in England who were also finding trilobites, and they began for the first time. Now, again, we take this for granted, but it was not until the 1830s that people in Britain and the Americas began to imagine that those two areas of land had once been connected. So this is a new geological understanding of a past that is beginning to stretch very far back in time. So next time you see a trilobite, be excited about it. Um, the, the Industrial Revolution is also important because they are finding evidence of a time in the past in Earth's history that was full of what they now called, and this is a new term coined in the 1830s, fossil fuels. Fossil fuels is a term that is coined in the early 19th century, precisely during the deep time revolution. They're cutting through the earth, they're looking for fuel to power the industrial revolution. They find an era, a lost era, full of palm trees from a time when the whole earth was like the Amazon, a kind of um, what they called the carboniferous, uh, an era of carbon. And this was going to become, here's another key word from this time period, the natural resource that would power the Industrial Revolution. So the Industrial Revolution, the cars, the trains, are all part of the new ways of approaching the Earth that help get us to deep time. Okay, deep time is great, but it brings up a bunch of new problems. And these are so interesting. And I give them to you not as me telling you what to think, but as partners with me in thinking about how difficult this is to think about. So deep time presents a number of issues. Let me just give you the first one. The first thing is that deep time is an inconceivable concept. Charles Darwin is one of the many people in the 19th century who thinks about deep time, right? Evolution has to happen over deep time. And he says it is incomprehensible Intensively vast. He is one of many others who look at the idea of deep time, that the Earth is not 6,000, but maybe 10 million, 20 million, 4 billion years old, and says, that may be so, but I cannot conceive of that. So it's this startling new concept that by its very nature is an inconceivable concept. So this is wonderful for historians like me who like to imagine how people think about their world. To imagine a new idea that you cannot think about is an absolutely extraordinary thing uh, that is very, very fun for us to think about. So deep time also has a second problem with it, which is that it is existentially horrifying. <laughs> One thing we know about human beings is that we like to be the center of the universe. <laughs> Nothing matters unless we are part of it, unless we are folded into our own history of the universe and the history of the Earth. It's hard to understand why it should matter. And deep time presents this problem in a really, really palpable way. The Bible ultimately is about human beings and how you get from then to now. And the Bible has at its very center the sense that human beings are God's special creation. Deep time does not have that assurance. It removes humanity from the story of life on Earth, from the story of Earth, from the story of the cosmos. You can have as many strata as you want 
But if none of them contain human beings, and if none of them contain the things that human beings are good at doing, which is having events, right? We have events. We have events like this one. And events leave documents. They leave traces in the historical record. None of those are present in these strata. So the strata present to people who could not before had imagined anything longer than a 6,000 year history that was in a document, it was in the Bible. The Bible had nothing to say about strata. So this was very, very um, unsettling. A book in which we were not even the act, not, not just not, act, not the main actors, but not actors at all in it. So what do you do to fix this problem? Well, in the 19th century, we see a number of solutions emerging to this problem, which is to try to make the inconceivable concept of deep time conceivable, not only conceivable, but as we saw with the slinky unwinding of the Earth's history in the thing that you're gonna look at later on when you go home, um, to make it beautiful, to make it relatable, to make it in some ways part of our own humanity when in fact we know deep down inside that deep time doesn't really have humanity necessarily as part of it. So what do some of these images look like? Some of these are gonna be familiar to you, but I hope that from now on, you look at them as the evidence of the, the birth of deep time. So this is one of the many images to come out of some of the Grand Canyon exploring expeditions of the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s. This is William Henry Holmes' painting of the Grand Canyon. This is incredible, right? This is like strata central. Uh, looking uh, down into the Grand Canyon, you see all of these layer cakes of time. And look at these teeny tiny human beings. They're totally insignificant uh, in this larger canvas. But it is so incredibly beautiful that you don't care. And it is so incredibly beautiful, and I'm just giving you things to think about, right? You don't have to agree with me, just think about this, bear with me. Um, it is so incredibly beautiful that even though it is existentially horrifying, even though we as human beings are insignificant, we imagine that perhaps something like the deity might be there because it is so transcendently beautiful and it makes us think about eternity in the way that people in the 18th century and before thought about eternity. So one way to think about deep time images is as the secularization of the, the Judeo-Christian idea of the cosmic eternity in the face of the scientific revolutions of the 18th and 19th century. Here's another example of a deep time image. Uh, this is the um, uh, Kansas. This is Kansas <laughs> in the 19th century, uh, as seen in 1872, when they first began to imagine that the Midwest, right, the flyover country as we call it now, was an inland sea. This is the, they, they're starting to find the bones of these wonderful sea serpent-like uh, animals. This is one of the very first landscape images 
of the great inland sea that once covered the United States uh, that emerges after the Civil War. Now, what I love about this is that the characters are so funny. Um, you know, they're laughing, they're playing in the water, and there's this sort of Superman one uh, flying overhead. Uh, these, these, again, bear close examination. Here's another uh, deep time image. Um, <laughs> This is great. The originals are at Princeton, so next time you're at Princeton, please do have a look. Um, this is a landscape painting of Cretaceous life in New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> please look at this more closely at home. Um, uh, where's my pointer here? I just have to point out so many things to you um, on this. Okay, these guys, look at these guys here. There's these kind of thuggish characters dancing, um, and there's a kind of attack of the snakes uh, coming closer here. And this is a, an attempt to represent these lizard-like creatures uh, in an era that had just named uh, the dinosaurs. So, you know, we again, we look at images like this of dinosaur paintings and we say, yeah, of course, they're dinosaur paintings. But this all had to be invented over the course of the 19th century. So first you get these disembodied trilobites like I showed you from the 1820s and 1830s. But look what has happened to the visual imagination essentially by the Civil War era is that suddenly they're able to imagine this canvas where you would have a perfectly good landscape painting, but instead of a bunny rabbit, you have a dinosaur. This, again, is, it requires a, a real turnover in people's imagination uh, to think that New Jersey once looked like this. Now, for those of you who are big fans of the Hudson River School uh, of Painting, Thomas Cole, all of these others, um, Im please imagine them next time, possibly, as images of deep time. I'm showing you one example here. This is Martin Johnson Heed's beautiful painting of Lake George from 1862. Now, this is not Lake George up in Mammoth Lakes. This is Lake George in upstate New York. When you first look at this painting, there is absolutely nothing that is exceptional about it. It looks like your basic Hudson River School type of painting. There's a pretty lake, there's some clouds, there's some mountains, there's some people in the boat, end of conversation. But look more closely and you actually see that he'd understands the geological past of Lake George. He understands that it is the product of a recent ice age and that at some point, huge glaciers blanketed North America and upon receding, scraped the ground along this big rock and left great boulders in very strange places, also known as glacial erratics. Here's an example right here of a glacial erratic. Now, again, and I have a little close-up for you here. Um, so art historians call these rock portraits, things that look like just your basic generic landscape painting, but in fact, the lake is not the subject of the painting. The rocks are the subject of the painting. And they're not only rocks, they're rocks from the recent ice age, the Ice Age is a concept that was invented in the 19th century as a product of deep time. We don't think that it's exceptional or strange or revolutionary, but the idea of the Ice Age, or what they call, and this is for your next speaker, they used to call it the idea of periodic refrigeration. Periodic refrigeration, another term for Ice Ages, asks you to imagine not just climate change, but climate variability. It's a very important distinction. 
Since about the 15th century, people had imagined that the Earth had climate change. So climate change is not a new concept. The reigning theory of Earth's formation was that it had emerged as a ball from, uh, of hot like lava from the sun, and that over about 500 years, it had begun to cool, and that the end of the Earth was going to be as an ice ball. So the Earth's climate was changing, but it was just changing once. It was changing from very hot to very cold. Once they start seeing glacial erratics, once they start seeing these scraped rocks, they begin to imagine that there was a time in the past where the Earth was colder than it was now. And so they had to imagine that the Earth had gotten hotter and colder and hotter and colder. Climate variability is built into the idea of deep time as it emerges in the 19th century. And uh, we inherit that idea today, and we're thinking through it in, in other ways. Okay, final problem of deep time that we're going to talk about tonight. If deep time is incomprehensible, how does the human brain actually understand the deep time over which it is now believed to have evolved? So Dar this is like a tricky question, right? You've got to read this a couple times before you understand what it means. But basically, Darwin asks us to imagine that human beings, along with other animals and plants, emerged over deep time, that over millions and millions of years, human beings changed from essentially apes and monkeys into the people that we have today. The human brain is therefore not just a product of evolution, but it is a product of deep time. How does the brain understand the deep time over which it is believed to have evolved? So this also requires conceptualization. People had been thinking about the brain for several hundred years. This is an example of how you can look at different kinds of brains over the course of the 18th century. So comparing brains, thinking about brains, this idea is not new. But what you have in the 19th century is the first effort to understand the human brain in geological terms as the product of deep time. So they imagine that there's a lower part of the brain that is very, very primitive. And it can only understand space in terms of time. That is, it takes me three days to walk to Menlo Park. That is how far Menlo Park is from here. It takes me three days to walk there. That's the primitive part of the brain, they think in the 19th century. <laughs> Over time, the higher parts of the brain, like geological strata accreting, begin to get deposited in the human mind, leading to our modern advanced brains. How do we know they're modern and advanced? Is that we can imagine time in terms of space. We have things like clocks that help us to see time in spatial terms, and this is a sign of how advanced we are. So the human brain begins to be imagined like a geological stratum in the 19th century, that its strata, like rocks, are layered through time. Now let me show you how that idea has crept into our way of thinking and talking today in ways that we didn't even know. Many of us, all of you in this room, have certainly used the term 
the stream of consciousness. And you have probably used it without understanding the origins of this term. Well, it emerges from the deep time revolution in the writing of the Harvard psychologist William James, who studied with the geologist Louis Agassiz at Harvard and was very, very influenced by this new deep time way of thinking, not just about the Earth as layered strata, but about the human brain as layered strata. So he tried to explain how you could understand the flow of human thought as a kind of geological process. So he asks you to imagine saying this sentence, the pack of cards is on the table. This is gonna bring back traumatic memories of diagramming sentences in seventh grade. So I'm sorry, because it brought those back for me. Sorry, Mrs. Colley, I didn't like uh, diagramming sentences. But William James is asking us to imagine, and I, I actually, I brought a prop. So here, look at this. The pack of cards is on the table. And he's asking you to diagram what the brain is doing as it is thinking that thought. So, and he calls this the stream of consciousness. So here's what he's imagining. Remember the X, Y axis I showed you earlier in the talk? This is exactly what he's doing. He's imagining you saying this sentence, the pack of cards is on the table, and the one, two, three, and four is not grammatical, right? It's just like time. Time is happening, one, two, three, four. And then he has this y-axis, this spatial dimension. And what the space is, is not a kind of geological stratum, but it is what he calls the fullness of thought. So as you're saying the sentence, and as you're thinking it, your mind is getting fuller and fuller and fuller of the thought of the pack of cards being on the table. So that at the end of the sentence, you're way up high with your thinking about the pack of cards being on the table. Now, what's interesting about this is that he says, if you put a knife through the center of the thought, imagine doing that, put a knife through the center of the thought, you would find it suffused with the whole of all of the rest of the thought. Just like a knife cutting through the strata of the rocks that I have been showing you would show you cutting through all of the strata of the earth. So when you use the term the stream of consciousness, he means a stream in the literal geological sense of the term, that our brains have thoughts running through them that are like streams that erode through our minds and that we can diagram them like a geological stratum. Okay. I'm at the end of my time and I want to end up back with our image today. So this looks like a very simple image of deep time. We are beginning 4.6 million years ago. We are ending in the now. But now we have a much more complicated understanding of this very peculiar image. First of all, we know that it is a peculiar image, that it is a strange way of thinking about the world. We know that it presents 
cognitive dilemmas to us. We cannot think in our Darwinly evolutionized brains of that amount of time. No matter how hard we try, we cannot imagine 4.6 billion years of time. That is impossible to do. We do not know why it is impossible to do, but we know that people in the 19th century began to ask those questions. We think the Earth is billions of years old. Why can't we think about those billion years of time when we know that our own brains evolved over that amount of time? And so we develop images like this one, whose beauty and uh, interest, in a sense, um, calm us down, <laughs> to walk us back from the existential horrors that deep time presents to us. And it reassures us that even though the rest of history has nothing to do with us, it in fact all culminates in a surfer, you know? <laughs> so we are actually part of the story. So I want to talk to you more during the Q&A about how we want to look at these images now, where they come from in the past. But in the meantime, let me thank you for giving you my attention tonight. Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you so much. Um, well, that was... That, 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 was, that was what we were looking for. This is fantastic. Um, cool. So, so uh, let me ask you, let's, I, I'd like to take a, a, a step back and, and reframe the timeline a little bit. Um, what, where does this, is there a linchpin? Is there an actual kind of starting event for this dawning mm -hmm. of the realization? Is, is there something you would point to? Um, and, and what year is that? Just to sort of track that. Yeah, uh, where can you find a starting event for something that unfolds over 120 years? Um, I would say that, um, gosh, it's hard to find a starting event. The publication of Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology in the early 1830s is this hugely important monument. Lyell is a geologist, he's British, he looks in England, he looks at the United States. He's the one who coins the term natural resources. So next time you use the word natural resources, thank Charles Lyell. He's the one who begins to say that the earth is millions and millions of years old. That's the book that Darwin reads on the Beagle when he's going to the Galapagos. And he begins to imagine that the history of life on earth is a history of change and extinction and constant renewal, and that that could not have happened over 6,000 years. That had to happen through the long time period that Charles Lyell describes in the Principles of Geology. So one of, you know, his, historians hate counterfactuals, so I can't even believe that I'm gonna give you one right now, okay? So pretend I didn't do this. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but. The whole history of the modern world would have been different if Charles Darwin didn't have Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology in the early 18th, published in the early 1830s to read in The Voyage on the Beagle. He would not have had enough time 
for evolution to unfold. It just couldn't happen in 6,000 years. It just doesn't happen fast enough. Yeah, it reframes the problem. It reframes the situation. Yeah. The, the, the way you talk about it, I think is interesting. Um, it's, it's really kind of traumatic. It's a trauma that, uh, that civilization or, or the, the people as they're starting to think about it in different disciplines are, are they're traumatized by this yeah. changing in the dimensions of what they're doing. And so um, it's interesting you talk about um, the, way, the way that I think about how we conceive of the long now today, um, the initial things are kind of reactions to trauma mm -hmm. and they're kind of, it seems like adaptions that are being made kind of on the fly. It's only after this time, after this much, this farther away from the early events that kind of shook us, that we can do what we try and do with the long now and think of, okay, well, everything's stable now. Well, let's look at 10,000 years into the future. So we're not reacting, we're starting to be proactive. At least that's what I think we hope we're doing here at long now. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is a really, this is another interesting, um, this is like the twin brother or sister of deep time is deep future. Um, and when the, the one of the, so there's traumas associated with deep time as we saw today, right? With the kind of highway horror show that I showed you. Um, but, but this it has so many gifts attached to it that it opens up an eternity into the future. So, you know, the Judeo-Christian tradition also gives you an eternity but it's an eternity that's not within human control, right? You die, you go to heaven, and that's the eternity in the clouds. But this is the gift of the enlightenment and then the deep time revolution is that there is a new eternity and it's gonna unfold, uh, unfold on the earth, um, not somewhere else. And so being the inheritors of this extraordinary past, we now have this huge new responsibility for a future without known end. Whoa, what a huge responsibility, right? We can't farm it out to a deity. It's all on us. Yeah. And, and even though we're not in the center of it, as you said, even though it's not arranged around us as a place to work in, we can actually become actors in it once we yeah. see that it's open-ended on the future side. Is exactly, that, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, we're gonna we're gonna get your questions as well, Rose. Are you out there with Rose? Has the microphone, so get her attention. She'll get you the mic, uh, and and we'll get some of your questions. And a reminder to our folks um, that are on the live stream as well. Um, so uh, I want to just kind of go through our glossary again. So ice age, fossil fuels, natural resources. Yeah. Um, the the term fossil itself is that oh. how does that where does how does that uh, when does when does that first get reckoned? Oh, with? I I love these questions. Yeah. <laughs> You're like the dream questioner. So the word fossil just means something from the ground. Those of you who speak French, like une fosse, is like a place in the ground. So it's just stuff from the ground. So they were finding fossils in ancient among the ancient Greeks, just like big bones in the ground. And it wasn't until we get to the deep time revolution that they say, yeah, they're in the ground, and the deeper they are, the older they are. Um, and so then that's when we get the modern meaning of fossils, is not just something from the ground, but something from the ground that's really, really old. And the stuff that's further down in the ground 
is older than the stuff higher up, unless you've had some serious folding of, of the strata. So yeah. um, the fossil, and then the fossil fuel, you know. So this is this is another thing. So yeah, we again we did the existential traumas of deep time, but the way they begin to imagine fossil fuels is literally as the gifts of the earth to the industrial revolution. It seems almost kind of naively sweet, like thank you, thank you for the it's oil. Like Santa Claus. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you for the oil. Um, and, and, but this is how they imagine it in the 1820s and 1830s, that an early earth is speaking to our modern earth and it's saying here, here have some fuel. <laughs> because you are better than we are, because they believe in this idea of linear progress. So here, have some fuel for your industrial revolution. Wow. To, to, the past will power the present. Um, so there's these wonderful things that go along with yeah. it as well. Um, and, uh, and one more question for me before we get to your uh, questions. Um, so as, as we're seeing paintings that are speaking to, I mean, these are paintings that are bringing the news, they're bringing the science, this is nature, uh, the, the, the journal is, is a painting, it seems yeah. like. So, so can you say something about how did art and painting maybe specifically, because I don't mm. know this, but I'm thinking, it's media at that time, correct? Yeah. How, how, can you say something about how, um, how it, is this unusual that mm. ideas are being communicated through, uh, through, through artworks? Yeah. So I, um, I like to not necessarily use the word art because it's, it's a value judgment when you say something is art versus not art, right? Like, this, is this art or not art, right? It depends on where it is and who's looking at it and, and all of those things. So I like instead to talk about images. And science is a very image-happy um, discipline. Uh, scientists always use images to convey their ideas, and it is in fact through images, like diagrams, that scientific ideas become known to the scientist and then known to the general public. So we shouldn't imagine that science and art are these two, or science and images are these two separate things that occasionally talk to each other, but that they are completely bound up together. And in fact, the word visualization emerges in a scientific context in the 19th century. And it emerges among these deep time people. How do we visualize this? How do we make it real? What visualization helps you to do is to get rid of information that is confusing, overwhelming, and therefore extraneous. And it helps you to focus on the things that you believe you want to see. So graphs, charts, all these kinds of ways of looking. Um, they are ways of blinding yourself to some things mm -hmm. and opening your eyes to other things. So it's focusing, it's a fo it's focusing. A yeah, in a way. exactly. Yeah. But we should never imagine that scientists see nature as it really is. Scientists through see nature by creating the proper images to help them to see nature, <laughs> if that makes sense. And, and, and is that their conception? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to unpack that. But is that, is that their conception of it, or is that your sort of analytical take on what, this on what is, they're doing? Yeah, this is how historians of science view okay. the acti activities of science, scientists. Um, 
it is so ingrained in the way that we teach science that it almost becomes a neutral practice to, to scientists. But it's an essential part of the process of, of recreating nature so that you can see the parts that you do want to see and, and not see the parts that, that are so large and confusing that, that they render you unable to see it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay, and I think we've got a question right back there. Uh, yeah. Uh, so my question is about sense of responsibility. Um, but I just need to give a little personal context so the question makes some sense. So since I committed myself to the climate crisis as my thing, I have come to long-term thinking, and my, my thinking about the glaciers are all melting, they're older than civilization, so the, the, the fossil fuels are 500 million years old, so it's literally uh, putting myself in the context of a 5 million year old story while I'm being present, changing my daughter's diaper at the same moment. And so my <laughs> sense of responsibility towards the future is also my sense of responsibility to the legacy of humanity. But a lot of people today will say, oh, you know, the earth will go on, we won't be here, yada, yada, yada. They, they don't have any sense of responsibility. They throw off their sense of time that things will go on and change and something else will happen as a way of just not having any responsibility. So my question is, this era, how did this sense of deep time affect or not any sort of sense of responsibility towards mm -hmm. the world or towards humanity or the rest? Yeah, um, great question. So the f essentially the environmental movement is born during the deep time revolution in the 19th century. And it is born at the same time because of this need to secularize what before was a religious sense of cosmic mystery, that we were responsible for nature as God's stewards of nature. But now as all of, you know, as, as God is receding from that world, in a sense, nature is fully invested with these sacred properties when you read Emerson, when you read Thoreau, when you read their friend, when you look at the paintings of the Hudson River School people like the one I showed you, they are shimmering with a sense of cosmic responsibility um, that before was abstracted in religious texts and religious practices and that now is invested within nature. So they definitely have it. Um, and they too struggle with, you know, in a sense they're like Atlas. The responsibilities that before had been placed on the shoulders of the deity, God had created the earth. And, and when he was mad, he could flood it. And he did flood it, you know, but that was all coming from his endless creative energies. I'm speaking in the 18th century, right? This is not me speaking, I'm channeling <laughs> the 18th century. Um, but now all of this was placed on human shoulders, that nature was a human responsibility because we didn't know where the deity was anymore. Um, Newton had suggested that through this idea of, of, of scientific law. So this emerges at the same time, it's one of the the existential crises that deep time brings along with it. Um, you know, it's small comfort to say, well, you know, we're gonna annihilate 
all life on earth. We're just, everything's going to get so hot, we're all going to melt and that's going to be it. In 200 years, there won't be a single human being on earth. That's okay because there's been like six major extinctions, you know, and, and life has recovered. And, and some people are saying that, right? Who cares? You know, the earth will go on. We just won't be part of it. That's, the, that's deep time talking. Um, but, but there's always that nugget of the earlier time when it mattered to us that we were a central part of the narrative of life on earth. Um, so, so that crisis is meeting in the 19th century. Yeah, let me, uh, Abby. Carol, is it fascinating? Sorry, fascinating talk, and I hope you're taking a sabbatical soon so we can read your book quickly. Oh, you're so nice. Yes, um, I am. But one thing that I'm glad you mentioned um, Darwin and Lyle, because one thing that puzzles me is, incomprehensible as this is, who actually gave anybody permission to think about the facts and understand them as we do now? We know that Charles Lyle actually gave permission to Darwin to take all the time he needed for evolution. But how did people... It wasn't just Darwin and, and Lyle. How did people give themselves permission to think about the existentially nauseating? Yeah, how do people give themselves permission to think about the existentially nauseating? Um, I think that, I don't know if I can answer that particular question. It raises the larger question of, of how we give ourselves permission to think any new and dangerous idea. And um, part of it involves unthinking cherished old truths. So to begin to think of the long now, we have to unthink other things that we really, really, really value like that the earth cares if we're here or not, <laughs> you know? Um, so part of it is uh, giving themselves permission to um, abandon everything that goes along with the short chronology, um, getting rid of biblical literalism. It's no surprise that the higher biblical criticism is of the Bible that's happening in Germany and the United States is, is unfolding over the course of the 19th century, that Moses himself did not just sit down and like write the Bible uh, all at once, that it's this patchwork of texts written at different times for different purposes. So, so I would say that it's a, it's a multi-pronged process that happens across a variety of media, but that it is, it's just intensely dislocating at a really fundamental level. You know, this is kind of where Freudian psychology ultimately is from. Freudian psychology is, is the psychology of archeology. span It's fossil psychology, right? So what's wrong with you? Well, it, we must look into your deep past um, to figure out what's wrong with you. And once we get that trilobite and we extract it and look at it, it's gone and you'll be fine afterward. But you know, Freud was very interested in Egyptian archeology. span He was very interested in classical archeology, span um, the idea of the Oedipus complex, all of these things. Um, imagine the human psyche as a, a great archaeology. So, so I don't know if it's so much giving yourself permission. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be thinking about your question for months from now. It's as small pods of coping, 
you know, in various parts of your life. You, you try to cope here, and then you say, well, now this doesn't work anymore, and then you try to cope here, and then suddenly the whole thing just falls apart, and, and Einstein was part of that. Mo modernist cubist art was another part of it. None of it hangs together anymore. So uh, just to show that past interval speakers asked the toughest questions. It's Abby Smith-Rumsey. You can see her talk uh, on our site. And Abby brings up the very important topic of you are working on a book, book. from this material, right? So, yes. so you've given us this amazing opportunity to discuss this with you while you are in the process. Can you tell us a little bit more about where you are in the process and what fills in? Are there, uh, is, it, is it more detailed stories? Are there whole areas that you haven't yet explored? Can you, can you characterize a little bit what your process is at this point? Yeah, uh, so I'm at the very, very beginning of the, of the book process um, right now. It's actually, it's, at, it's the most fun part of the book where all is possibility and, and you haven't actually finished the research <laughs> or, or done a ton of the research to show that some of your harebrained ideas are actually totally unsupported by impure evidence. Um, so, so yeah, so basically the book is to write a history of deep time as it unfolded over the 18th and 19th centuries, how we get from the American Revolution to the car, basically what I showed you early on. Um, you know, most histories of geology, deep time, etc., are set in Europe. That's where the action is. And this is sort of like, well, so the title of the book in my head is How the New World Became Old. Um, and that's really what happened yeah. over the course of the 19th century. You know, the new world was not just new because Columbus, quote, discovered it. And, you know, we know he didn't discover it, right? But you know what I mean. The Columbus discovered it. It was new because of what I showed you, because they believed that the Americas were the last to emerge from the biblical floodwaters. So it was new in both senses of the term. It was new for, hum new for Europeans, but it was also just new in a cosmic sense. And to go from believing that to a hundred years later, having found the Craton, the middle of the ancient continent, in the middle of Canada, in a hundred years? And to think that that's actually true? You know, the only thing, you know, that's kind of more revolutionary after that is the idea of plate tectonics, that the action's on the edges. The action is on the edges, which is kind of a metaphor for a lot of things, I think. But deep time is also, and this is where I kind of want to end up with the book, deep time is a precondition for deep space. We would not have had NASA and the space program and Hubble and all of those things without the, the idea that not just Earth's history, but the history of the cosmos itself expands not just in time, but in space. So the term uh, deep space is coined in the 1920s and 1930s. The term deep time is coined by John McPhee in 1981 in the book Basin and Range, um, a beautiful, beautiful book um, about his own coming to, to terms with the plate tectonics revolution of the 1960s. He had gone to Princeton during the 1950s when they didn't know anything about plate tectonics. And then there was this big revolution that said, hey, there's plates and they move, and that explains everything. And so he took trips across the United States with geologists in the wake of the plate tectonics revolution to try to understand how his whole frame of reference had shifted in the wake of this revolution. He comes up with this beautiful word, deep time, to talk about a 100-year-old concept, but he, he himself piggybacked on the term deep space. 
Isn't that cool? Yeah. <laughs> so there was the idea, but there was no term for it. And then there's this deep, but it gives rise to the deep space idea. And then that gives us the term deep time. I love that. Wow. Yeah, so that the book will hopefully be done in like three or four years. So, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is no time at all, people. No That's time at all, geologically no at speaking. All. Yeah. Um, we bet, and, and I, I want to apologize. I'm sure we'll have more questions than we have time for. You're going to be sticking around after yep. this, so uh, folks can come up and ask more questions. We've got another question over here, please. Great. Thank you so much, Professor. Uh, my name is Nicole Boyer. I facilitate long-term thinking for a living. I'm a scenario planner been doing it for about 20 years, and increasingly I find decision makers getting um, more and more out of the sense of possible and more paralyzed. Because because we're also at a moment in time where so many inconceivable things are happening mm -hmm. very rapidly. You've got AI, you've got blockchain, you've got climate change, you've got you know gene hacking, you can go on and on. And I find um, the use of history increasingly important to get them unstuck. So thank you so much for doing that, because it reminds them about that sense of possibility and that big changes have, have happened in the past. Yeah. But they still stay stuck, right? Yep. Um, and then I have to get them into seeing all the innovations in the present that could add up to something very, very different and, and exponentially different. So my question for you and the group, the hive mind, is you know, if, if strata was the metaphor of this period of time, what are the, what are the metaphors now that are sort of influencing our, our sense of time? Is it the web? Is it, are there networks? And, and who is the Charles, mm. or who are the Charles Lyles of now? Um, yeah. That might completely re reframe how we think about time. I love that question. I, well, and, and it's interesting, it, it, it uh, resonates with something that I was thinking too, which is it, it, you're, you're pointing to the power of metaphors when you show yeah. that, 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 that looking at the brain. Um, and there's something very readily there as we look at this genetic um, work and their parallel with computer programming, but actually that that um, is, is in a way cycling back to earlier sort of biological ideas that led into the dawn of computing. So there's, mm -hmm. there's an interesting kind of back and forth between those two worlds, and some of those are metaphorical and some of them are practical yeah. or, or, or design-based, because the metaphor leads to a design that then becomes um, that you've expressed a metaphor in how you've built the thing, yeah. which is fascinating. And, and, and I'm sure that there are technological things that were built uh, along that geological model. After all, we talk about stacks from a technology standpoint, so, so there's, there's a layering yeah. certainly going on there. I don't know. But um, what are yeah. what, uh, what so, are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, one of the things I love about giving talks about work that's just early in its gestation process is that I get great questions that help me to, to think it through. So I don't have answers to everything, but I would say that one of the keywords of now is the word network. Now, why it's important is because it is non-stratigraphic. So. Um, the word network is not coined until very late in the 19th century. And, what the, and, and I would also say we can only speak in metaphors. We don't just talk. We always talk through images um, to try to make concrete abstractions. So network emerges because it is a way of talking about human communication that is in the absence of any depth to it. So it is non-geological. So it talks about the communication revolution of the late 19th century. Suddenly you have trains, you have roads, you have the telegraph, you have simultaneity, 
right? That's the thing that Einstein's trying to figure out, simultaneity. So networks are about shallow, shallow connection. It is the very opposite of the way they're thinking about everything else in the 19th century through these deep structures. Karl Marx thinks about class geologically, right? That, that there are these proletariat and there's the capital owners and, and, and the perpetual stirring of that geological stratum is the engine that drives history forward. When you introduce the metaphor of the network, which we love today, you immediately erase the Marxist analysis of class conflict. You erase class. That's the beauty of Facebook. It is connection through network where class is absent. So, so that is a metaphor of the way that we today are struggling with how we think about differences among human beings, differences in our economic structures. So um, I think somebody, somebody needs to write a book about the power of the metaphor of network in the 20th century. And to go back to something earlier that I said about how scientists work, we all work that way, right? We use metaphor not just to see, but to unsee things that we do not want to see. And the network as a metaphor for human interaction that is surface without depth, present without past, is a really powerful organizing metaphor for the modern period and worth pondering. And, and that's remarkable that you explain it that way because the last two or a couple of the last talks, the last seminar um, was about the decentralized blockchain is this decentralized approach. So, they, so the, that network still has a hierarchical aspect, even if it's not layered. Mm -hmm. It's centralized. So Facebook right. is at the middle of it. And, and there's, a, uh, there's a lot of fascinating discussion in blockchain technologies and some other technologies and, and the Brian Bellendorf talk that we had here and uh, the Juan Bennett uh, talk that we had in the seminar series, which you can see online, is um, are, are looking at decentralizing those things mm -hmm. that require us to have a nexus point uh, to, to distribute or to, to go a server, a single server in oh, the middle, right. that, that now it can be distributed across that. So that's that definitely worth pondering. Um, before we, uh, before we wrap up, um, let's talk about the book we do have in hand mm -hmm. here tonight. So your book, uh, American Enlightenment. And you are, I mean, would you, your, your expertise is, or, or one of your focuses on the Enlightenment era. Yeah. Can, can, you, um, can you tell us about this and also connect how, uh, the, having, having done this, that, that you've come to this as your yeah. next subject? Yeah. Um, so this book came out in 2016. And we've learned that, paradoxically, yes. the paperback is way more expensive than the hardcover. So these are <laughs> cosmic mysteries yes. that cause us existential <laughs> angst. Um, so yeah, when I wrote this book, what I realized is, uh, so what, what do I do at Stanford? I'm a historian of ideas. What fascinates me is how people think about their world. I'm fascinated by how you think about the world. I'm fascinated by how people in the past thought about their world and how people change their minds. I'm just fascinated that people change their minds and how they go about doing it, which was, which was uh, part of Abby's question. So the American Enlightenment um, was really fundamentally about hope, the idea that 
We, as human beings, could make tomorrow better than today through sheer human effort. That's fundamentally what it's about. They thought they could do it in every realm of their lives, um, in society, in economics, in government. They thought kings were bad. Kings were bad because they would bring us into the Dark Ages, which, and they're the ones that called the Dark Ages the Dark Ages because they were not enlightened. Mm. Right? Um, and I thought these people were really, really interesting because they were people who took 2,000 years of history and decided that it didn't apply to them any longer, you know? And that they were really, really courageous. They weren't always right. They never finished the product, the, the project. We're still trying to, to do what they set in motion. You know, the month Jefferson died in 1826, he said, all eyes are opening to the rights of man. You know, that's like almost 200 years ago and our eyes are still opening to the rights of man, of what we would say of, of humanity, of human. We're still deeply concerned about human rights. Um, and this, these are projects that the Enlightenment set in motion. So the book looks at those projects um, in various aspects of American life. The idea that, the, the sort of radical idea, for example, that slavery was wrong. Well, it hadn't been wrong for 3,000 years. So why did it suddenly become wrong in the 18th century? Um, the chapter, all books emerge out of earlier books, um, I think. So the book, the law, the, deep time book that I'm writing now emerges out of um, a chapter in here that is called Seashells in the Appalachians. And, and it was about the people like Jefferson who climb up into the Appalachians, you know, in their little 18th century short chronology way, you know, and they say, hey, there's shells and from the sea. <laughs> Why are they here? <laughs> and what can we do to explain this? Um, and, and they were so interesting and so charming. And they, um, they had a couple people who were picking it. This was so clear that it was an unsolved project that I thought, man, somebody's got to write the long, the long version of that. Uh, so, so that's what I'm up to now. All right. Well, three or four years, huh? Well, so by academic standards, that's just the blink of an eye. I tell Got you, it. that is just Got like it. that. All right. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> please, please stick around. You're going to stick uh, around stick here. Around. And as we have conversations with you, you're going to tell us, oh, that term was only invented in 1920. In, yeah, yeah, in yeah. Serbia. I love yeah, that. Yeah. Um, I have for you... Um, the Long Now Challenge coin, which features a bristlecone pine uh, as oh. a thank you for, uh, oh. for speaking for us tonight. I love Let's this. give a big round of applause for Carolyn Andrew. <laughs> if you enjoyed this talk, check out previous episodes with Neil Stevenson, Stuart Brand, Kim Stanley Robinson, and many more. Find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen. The Long Now Foundation is a member-supported nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. Long Now members make everything we do possible. Learn more at longnow.org.